Acts chapter 8. Uh, this morning we are continuing a series in the book of Acts. We have said from week one that Acts is the story of God's Spirit working through God's people to accomplish God's mission. And you see that all over the book of Acts from cover to cover, from front to back. And what you'll find many times in the book of Acts is God using regular Joes, ordinary folks like us, to accomplish his mission. Of course, we see the apostles, and we see Paul as a major portion in Acts, and Peter, and John, and these guys. But don't miss around that all the stories of people like me and you who are not apostles, and God using them to do mighty things like we saw last week with Stephen, who was not an apostle, who was an ordinary guy who had been set apart by the church to serve and to, and to help in some areas as a godly guy. And God uses him in a mighty way uh, to influence Saul of Tarsus, who we know today is the Apostle Paul. And also um, to be a great witness um, as he was the first martyr. And today, uh, the story of a guy named Philip. And here's what I want us to understand this morning from Acts chapter 8 before we dive into it. And that is simply this, is that God does really want to use and work through ordinary folks like me and you. He, he really does have a plan and a purpose for your life and to work in and through your life if you know Christ this morning. If you don't know Christ, God's plan for you starts with first he wants you to be reconciled to God, through, to him, through Jesus. But then he's got a plan and a purpose for our lives. But we tend to want to think about inviting God into our lives and get him on board with us. What we're going to see this morning is the key to understanding your purpose in life is getting on board with what God's doing and inviting him into your life to take over and to control your life and to work in and through your life. We need to stop it so much inviting God and start joining God and what he's doing in the world. He wants to use you. He wants to work through you. He wants to do extraordinary things through very ordinary people. So if you feel ordinary this morning like I do, just know God wants to do extraordinary things in and through your life like he did with Philip. I want you to imagine, though, that you've got a friend that you're always inviting to do whatever it is you like to do. So maybe you like to go to the movies or you like to play golf or whatever one of your hobbies is. And you're always inviting this friend you've met at work or in your neighborhood to go on one of these things with you. And they're always turning you down. And then you find out they hate going to the movies, or they hate playing golf, or they hate whatever it is you're inviting them to. They, they don't like doing that sort of stuff. And then you, you find out they like to go to the beach or whatever, so you invite them to go to the beach one weekend, and they go with you, right? Because you've, in, you've invited them into something that is kind of in their wheelhouse of what they want to do. Now, what do you think about it this way? God can and does work in all places at all times, and he can work in and through you at work, and he can work in and through you in your hobbies, and at church, and in your neighborhood, and when you're volunteering somewhere, or you're working out at the gym, or whatever it is you're doing, God can work in and through, and he wants you to seize every moment of every day. But we need to understand something. We need to understand that a lot of times we spend way too much time inviting God to be a part of what we are doing instead of joining God in his mission with what we're doing, okay? And finally, and, and we, we spend a lot of time trying to get God on our side if we're not careful. Instead of understanding that God's got something he's working to accomplish in the world, he's invited us to be a part of it, and the reason the Spirit of God is in your life, you're a Christian, is to empower you to accomplish what God wants, not to help you be whoever it is you want to be. And Acts 8 introduces us to the ministry of a very ordinary man named Philip who God did extraordinary things through. He's not an apostle, 
And he's the first person that Luke's going to show us who takes the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Remember Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses, Jesus promised, right? And he says you're going to go into, take the gospel to Jerusalem, into, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here we are in Acts chapter 8. And some time has passed. This hasn't been weeks. This hasn't been months. Some time has passed. And they're still in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, something happens. We read it last week when we talked about Stephen. After Stephen's death, an incredible persecution arises in Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus is helping lead the way. He's ravaging the church, the first three verses of, 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 of Acts 8 tells us. And he's actually going into homes and knocking on doors, right, and taking people out of their homes and arresting them. You say, well, why would he do that? Remember, the church met in houses. They met house to house. We find in Acts chapter 2. Throughout the week, they're always in people's houses. So imagine home group, right, and you've made your casserole, and everybody's come over, and you've got your child care set up outside, and you've got your nachos or whatever, and you get a knock at the door, and you think it's a guest, or that so-and-so finally decided to show up after not being there for a few weeks. But no, it's Saul of Tarsus, and he's here to take you and everybody in there, men and women, it says, to be locked in prison for your faith. That's what was the early church started to experience in Jerusalem, intense persecution. See, before, it was, the, it was James and Peter, or John and Peter. It was the apostles, and they were being arrested, and, and they were being chided, and, and threatened, and they were beaten. But it was all focused on the apostles to get them to stop. Now it's everybody. If you name the name of Jesus, you're being persecuted. You're being locked in prison. And in the case of Stephen, you're being killed for your faith. And it's a whole other level in Jerusalem at this point. And they begin to scatter. They begin to scatter. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Read with me now. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So they're scattered because an evil man named Saul, who we met last week, is doing all this persecution, right? But remember, Acts 1-8, they were supposed to scatter. But they hadn't scattered yet. But now they're scattered. So God worked even through this intense persecution to accomplish what? His purpose and his plan for his church. And Philip, he heads to Samaria and begins to preach there. Now, this is significant because he is a, a, a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jewish man who is, who is a Christian, right? And so, and at this point, the church is largely made up of Jewish believers in Christ, that Christ is the Messiah, because it's been contained to Jerusalem. And now he goes to Samaria, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. So it's interesting, the first place but the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem is to the people that the Jews hated the most and they hated the Jews the most. And we see the word being preached, it says, and mighty miracles and miraculous things have people being healed and delivered. And Tim Keller points out here we see both a ministry of word and deed. We see the word being going out and people's needs being met and joy spreading throughout the city. And then we continue in verse 9 of Acts 8. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon's a big shot in town in this particular city in Samaria. He's their Harry Houdini, you might say, or their Harry Potter or some version of the two, right? He's doing miraculous things. And there might even be demonic forces involved. It doesn't tell us, but we see those things at other places in Acts. If he's a great illusionist or some demon-possessed dude, we don't really know. But he's, he's really impressing people to the point that they think he's got the hand of God on his life. He is the power of God, they said, called great. They said, if God's at work in anybody, he's at work in Simon. That's what they thought in Samaria. But now, people are less impressed with Simon and they're more impressed with Jesus and what Jesus is doing through the life of Philip. And people are believing in Jesus and being baptized. And it says even Simon believes. But when you see the context, you're already raising questions like, he's amazed with the signs and wonders. Is, he, is, it, is it a real belief? Because the Bible speaks of two kinds of faith. There's a faith that even the demons have and shudder. And there's, it doesn't save. And there's a faith, a belief that does save. So what does he have? Well, let's continue. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So why does Peter and John have to come down to town, right? Why do they have to bring in the professionals, so to speak? Why is that going on? Well, the gospel's now in Samaria. This was kind of a, you know, controversial thing. Now the enemy, so to speak, is believing. Are, are they allowed in too? Because see, with Jews, it was like, you're, you're not of the faith. You're a heretic, Samaritans. And so now, can a Samaritan believe in Jesus and become a part of the people of God? And these apostles coming down to lay hands on them, I believe that the reason it's orchestrated that way is it's God's way of confirming for them, yes, they're part of the body too. It's, it's confirming them as they come into the body so that they understand that uh, these folks who they had disdained for so long, yes, they're family now. And you see in verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent! Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing that you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Simon here sees the outward manifestation of what's going on, these probably like a little Pentecost that they had kind of had. Right, as the Spirit comes in power on them. And he's very impressed at what he sees, the supernatural. He wants in. And in his trade, it was very normal for magicians to trade secrets through purchasing the secrets financially, right? So it'd say, hey, that's a nice trick you've got. Here's $100. Teach me that trick. Okay, I'll, teach, I'll go let's go over here in the corner. I'll teach you that trick. And that was just the way they did business. So he's thinking like a businessman here. And it seems to be that he's kind of thinking, man, if I could just get my hands on this, now people, I can get my crowd back. But Peter, it appears, 
seems to be telling us, bro, you're not even saved. You don't even get it. You don't even understand the nature of the gospel. Now, some people believe he's just a very new, raw Christian and that Peter's just giving him a harsh rebuke, and that's possible. But most commentators, at least that I've read, and from my own understanding, when you look at the language of the text, it's hard to get around this. And the early church tradition has it that he became the first heretic and began to lead others astray. But his heart is not right before God, he says, because his comment that he makes revealed that he doesn't seem to get how the gospel even works. He doesn't understand that the Spirit, the gift of God, is, is, not, is, is a gift of God. It's not something that you purchase. The very nature of how the gospel works and how salvation works seems to be foreign to him still. Simon seems to be thinking the Holy Spirit is something you can buy instead of someone you obey. And he's trying to use and manipulate God to get further in his field. Verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, back to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in the chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus as he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip here encounters, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, a treasurer. Now this, is, this isn't today's Ethiopia, as we know it today. And the word eunuch doesn't mean that it has to be a literal physical eunuch, but, because, and here's why, it was so common in their day for, for a court official, who's someone who served in the king or queen's court in this case, to be a eunuch, that it became synonymous with serving in the court. Court official, eunuch, it was like synonymous terms. But, as one commentator points out, because of the way Luke writes this, a court official, treasury, eunuch, He's probably telling us that this is most likely a physical eunuch, which was very common in that day in this position. And he's the treasurer for the queen. And among the Ethiopians, the queen basically ran the state. The king was seen so close to deity that it was like beneath him to get involved in things like that. And so the queen basically operated, uh, the, the, made the decisions, right? And so it's most likely that this particular guy, who could have very well been a pagan, was actually a God-fearer, though. Because where is he coming from? Jerusalem from worship. And so a God-fearer is someone who was not fully a Gentile, who was not fully converted 
to Judaism, had not went through the full conversion process, but believed in the God of Israel. And that seems to be the case that we have here. But as a eunuch, he would not be allowed into the temple courts. He was an outcast. And so this is kind of a, a sticky situation, right? A unique person. So just like Samaria, that's kind of a unique situation. The people that have the most animosity towards the Jews and the Jews towards them. And then you've got this guy, this Ethiopian, God-fearer, eunuch. Sounds like a time for a professional. Sounds like a good time to call in an apostle. These two situations. But God chooses to work through Philip. And ordinary folks can and do see God do great through things through our lives. And there's some tips here. I believe there's some, some fingerprints here. There's some pointers here to help us understand how we can begin to see God do more and greater and more extraordinary things in and through our lives. Because when God uses a person to minister to another person, to point them to Christ, to build them up in their faith, to lead them to faith in Christ, to see life change happen in their life, that's a miracle, miraculous, wonderful, extraordinary, supernatural, incredible thing when the Spirit of God works through a person. So how can ordinary folks see God do extraordinary things in our, in our life? Well, there's three little things here I want to kind of point out to you in this text. The first one is we need to leverage our circumstances and leave our comfort zones. These people, these ordinary Joes that begin to scatter, who Stephen and Philip were among, well, Stephen wasn't, but Philip was among those, they are people who leverage their circumstances and left their comfort zones. Remember? You will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, the ends of the earth. But they're still in Jerusalem. But now, through difficult and the painful circumstance of persecution, they're forced to scatter. They're leaving home for safety's sake. And, you know, in those situations, when your world's been rocked and everything's off kilter and you're getting out of town because everything seems to be falling apart around you, is a great time to make excuses to not obey God. That's when our excuses tend to come in, right? And they could have made excuses. I need to get back on my feet. I just need to get settled. Look how much trouble it caused in Jerusalem to live out my faith. I got to go make my way somewhere else and be a little, we got to be a little quieter about this stuff. There's all kinds of excuses they could have made, but they, they didn't do this because they, instead they chose to leverage the circumstances that had been dealt them to accomplish the mission that God had commanded them to accomplish in the first place. They obeyed God in every circumstance. They leveraged their circumstance for obedience. And Philip here heads straight for a very uncomfortable place for a Jew to Samaria. Now the Samaritans came about, how these people came about was a group of Jews intermarried with pagan Gentiles and begin to mix the worship of God with the worship of idols. That's how this race of people came about. They created their own religion. They had their own Old Testament. They took out the prophets, right? You look today and you see people groups that call themselves the people of God and they've taken the Bible and they've manipulated it and put in their own stuff and taken out other stuff. That's been going on since the Old Testament. And that's what was going on here with the Samaritans. And the Jews saw them as unclean because of their intermarriage with these idolaters and their compromise of the Word of God. And Jews in that day, who were really strict about it, wouldn't even travel, wouldn't even travel, would, wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They'd go out of their way to avoid Samaria. For one thing, it was dangerous because the Samaritans hated them as much as they hated the Samaritans. And they didn't want to get near them. 
But here we've got a guy who goes directly into this deeply religious, cultural, ethnic, racial conflict and says, I'm going to preach the gospel. He didn't travel around it. He gets into it on purpose because he knew that Jesus has said that's where they're supposed to go. And being used by God requires us to do things that we may find uncomfortable, challenging, nerve-wracking, that gets us out of our comfort zone. It may not always feel smart by the world's standards to obey God. It may not always feel safe. It may not be something we would normally in our natural self choose to do. And a lot of times we don't experience the Spirit of God working in our lives and using us on mission because the things we're doing can easily be done in our own power. We've said this before. We can go through living the Christian life and, and live it in such a way that we don't need the Holy Spirit. If we don't share our faith and we don't minister to others and we don't love people that are hard to love, you don't need the Holy Spirit as much. We just live in our flesh. Right? Jesus said it this way. Love your enemies. Even, even the Gentiles, even the pagans love those that love them. Right? We, we need supernatural help when we start living like God wants us to live. But when we put ourselves in situations where we don't need God, we don't, see, we don't depend on Him like we should because we don't see him as necessary. It's like, I'm from rural Alabama. And like, growing up, every, every other person had a four-wheel drive. Snows there like once every five years. And it's usually about this much. And everybody runs the store. Nobody needs a four-wheel drive, I guess, unless you maybe have a boat or you just like to get off-road in it. You'd see these nice, right? $45,000, $50,000 trucks, four-wheel drive, all decked out. Never, never been put in four-wheel drive. I mean, you, you buying a truck? Yeah. You need a, you're going to get a four-wheel drive? No, why not? Well, I don't need it. I don't see the point in it. Now, if I had hobbies or something, hunting and things, it would be different, right? But I don't, I don't see the need. It would seem unnecessary to me. And some people, we don't, we don't really depend on God like we should because we don't sense the necessity of it because we're not putting in ourselves in situations where we need Him as much as we should. But when you start living on mission, you'll start praying more. You'll start seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit more and yielding more of your life to Him. When we leave our comfort zone and begin to minister to the needs of others, to share God's Word, we begin to be used by God to bring great joy to others and our, even our city as they happen in Samaria. Let me ask you, are you limiting your usefulness with your whack, lack of willingness to be uncomfortable? Are there people that you refuse to interact with? Situations you purposely avoid? And it could be that the reason, if you sense, I just don't sense that God's using me, that God's working through me, it could be because you've put up walls to actually prevent that from happening that need to come down. We have to leverage our circumstances to leave our comfort zone. Secondly, God uses people who don't try and use God for our own purposes. Simon, in this story, the magician, is a contrast to both the Ethiopian and to Philip in this chapter. He's a contrast to the Ethiopian because whereas the Ethiopian is a picture of how the Spirit works in a life to bring about true, genuine conversion, repentance and faith, Simon shows us it seems to me that not everyone who professes faith and is baptized is converted. Simon's heart still not right with God. The idol of self-adulation, personal fame and power still sits on the throne of his heart and is still making the decisions in his life. But he's also the opposite of Philip. In a contrast to Philip. See, Philip is sensitive to the God's Spirit. He immediately goes to Gaza when he's told. He responds to the Spirit's prompting when he's prompted. He wants to be used by the Spirit of God. He's doing hard things for God. He's, he's sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But 
Simon wants to use and to manipulate God's Spirit to accomplish what Simon wants accomplished. Simon looked at how Peter and John laid hands on those people and the supernatural that happened, and he craved that in his life. He craved the ability to use God's Spirit for personal gain. So we need to be warned this morning that a profession of faith, first of all, without heart change, is no conversion. Because Simon seems to be a warning of that. But also be warned that God's not your butler. He's not, he's not a genie that's come to grant our wishes and to make our lives better. He's not a means to an end. He's the point. <laughs> the whole point of salvation is we're reconciled to God and we're giving now the ministry of reconciliation. The point of salvation is not God comes into my life to just to make me into who I want to be. Help me to accomplish my dreams and my vision for my life. Imagine you've got a friend who's got a lot of money. Single friend. And all of a sudden this significant other comes into their life that they begin to date. And things are moving fast. Then they're engaged. Things are moving real fast. Then all of a sudden something happens and through some series of unfortunate events your wealthy friend loses all their money. And that person that had come into their life so quickly and they had gotten attached to so closely now all of a sudden is gone. And what would your counsel be to your friend? You say, man, they're a gold digger. I could tell it all along anyway. I think they were way, I mean, you, you, you would have this sensitivity. You'd, you'd feel bad for your friend because you'd say, they didn't stick with you. They didn't love you. You might have loved them, but they didn't love you. They were using you. They were manipulating you. And listen, God's not interested in being used or manipulated to give us what we want. He's not interested in being someone we invite into our life to get on board with what we're trying to do. That we discard that if we can get what we want. It's like the person who, who comes to an altar or goes to a counseling session and weeps before God and prays and asks God to fix their marriage because their marriage is in shambles. And then their marriage gets healthy again and gets stronger. And all of a sudden, Disney World becomes Sunday worship service. You can't find them. IRS can't find them. Private eyes can't find them. You can't, they're not connected to the church in any way anymore. They're just kind of going about, at one minute they were, they were at everything, right? They were deeply involved and they're, man, they're so serious about their faith. But then they're gone. They're off radar. What happened? They got what they wanted and what they wanted was not God. It was marriage fixed. They used God to get what they wanted. Is it that far from a far cry from what Simon was doing when he wanted God to help him do magic better? We have to be careful. We can use and manipulate God or try to to get what we want, even things that are noble. Like a healthy marriage, which is a noble thing to desire. But God's not an accessory. And he don't want to be accessorized. There's a warning here for us. Don't try and get God on board with you. Get on board with Him. If God's not driving, He's not riding. He don't want to ride shotgun in your life or in my life. And if we're not experiencing God using us to bless others, to minister to others, it could be that we're trying to get on board, get God on board with our plans instead of us joining what He's doing. He's not interested in helping us do us can't be people that try and use and manipulate God to get what we want if we want to experience God working in and through us. Thirdly and lastly, we have to be people 
who follow the lead, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes if we're not careful. We write the supernatural right out of the Bible. We'll write it right out of our life. Like I heard somebody say this week, this past week, if we don't believe in the supernatural and experiencing the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life, what are we doing, right? God wants to work in and through us. And we see this incredible story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And what happening here in the eunuch story, Philip is joining the Spirit in what the Spirit is already doing. He's getting on board. He's following the Spirit's lead. And the dominant theme of the passage is that the Holy Spirit's at work and how Philip's being used in that. That passage is there to show us the sovereignty and the work and the leadership of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is at work, first of all, in the life of the eunuch. The eunuch had been to Jerusalem to worship. He might have even heard that passage while he was at worship. We don't know. And as a eunuch, we know that there was limitations on him in regards to the temple. But due to the physical defect of his body, right? But the law, the law had a, had, had placed a, had forbid him, had placed limitations on him. But here he is reading Isaiah, traveling back. And the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over this. Of all the passages he could have been reading, he's reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Verses 7 and 8. It's about the Messiah, but many in that day didn't understand that it was about the Messiah. They didn't understand the servant, the Messiah was the same person. And the particular portion he's reading is about the unjust treatment of the servant, how he's treated unjustly in his death. But right after that, it goes into how his death is on the behalf of others. Here's the other great thing about Isaiah. In Isaiah 56, just a few chapters over, God promised today when the eunuch would have a better name than son or daughter. Listen to this, Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And I don't know, but I like to think Philip flipped over a few pages. And he said, You see that? Like, yeah. Jesus came to make that reality. The Spirit is at work in the life of you. The Spirit's at work in the life of Philip. The angel of the Lord speaks to him. The Spirit commands him. We've already seen God using him in Samaria. He's been recognized as a servant leader in his church. So you see, and then God orchestrates an intentional moment. So you've got God's at work in the life of the unit. God's at work in the life of Philip. And then God orchestrates a moment where the two come together and he's reading Isaiah 53. And he asked, can somebody teach me what this is all about? I think I can handle that from there. I mean, it's just laid out right there before him. And Philip got to experience all this because when he was told to rise and go, he went. And when the Spirit said, go join the chariot, he went. Time after again, he's obeying. And Philip experienced the leadership of the Holy Spirit as he was living on mission with the Spirit. See, we miss the prompting of the Spirit because we're not in sync with the Holy Spirit. We're focused on what we want God to do for us and fix for us. And our prayers are consumed with our wish list. And we wonder why we don't experience God like we would like to experience God and using us in the lives of others and ministering to others and seeing God do incredible things. And many times it's because we're out of sync. See, Philip has this extraordinary moment 
And I know Acts is a unique book and it, everything's really intensified, but he has this extraordinary moment in his life because in the very normal things, when he was persecuted and he had to flee, he lived on mission. And I think the reason God takes a guy like Philip and does this supernatural, incredible story that looks like something out of Elijah in the Old Testament where he takes him in and then beams him out of there and all this crazy stuff is because Philip did something really simple when all that crazy stuff wasn't going on in his life. He went to Samaria and said, let me tell you about Jesus. And when we're obeying God and the orb just naturally going about, we'll begin to see more of these, so to speak, happenstance, I can't believe that happened, things that are really God moments. But see, a lot of times we're just not, we're not, we're not connected. It's like when you've got the radio on and you can't hear, you just get static. It's because you're on the wrong channel, you're on the wrong frequency. You get on the right frequency, everything comes through clear, right? Well, the frequency that God is working through is obedience to his mission. That's the frequency of the Holy Spirit. And when we live trying to obey the, what God has called us to do in fulfilling the Great Commission, we're on the frequency level that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate and wants to work through us. And when we choose to live on mission and minister to others in Jesus' name and seek the advancement of the gospel, we begin to choose to put ourselves in the lane that the Holy Spirit's driving in. But if our life is consumed with simply being entertained or making money, there's no mission mindset. There is no wonder we don't hear from God, feel God moving, sense God is working through us because we're actually choosing to avoid the actual arenas that he wants to work in. But Philip followed the Spirit's lead. He listened. He obeyed. And we have to understand that our encounters with others, those aren't accidents. We have to start listening. Next time you're listening to a friend, pour out their heart. You might pray a little prayer to yourself like, Lord, why am I here and why am I listening to this right now? Next time your neighbor says, you know, we should hang out sometime. Maybe you should see that as, Lord, are you trying to do something here? See, if we're trying to live on mission, if we're looking for God at work, we might begin to see God at work more. <clears throat> because God can and does and wants to use you and me to bring Him glory ultimately and bring joy to others. In both stories... In Samaria, with the Ethiopian unit, they end with these bookends of joy. Joy comes to the city as they're ministering in word and deed, and the, and the Ethiopian unit leaves rejoicing. When we live on mission and allow God to use us to minister to others and share the word of God, we become a people that bring joy to others. Let me ask you this morning. Have you believed the gospel? And do you believe God wants to spread gospel joy as he works through you? like he did through Philip? Or, like Simon, are we more interested in leveraging God for our own purposes? To get out of God what we want. We should be in the business of helping bring joy to our city, to our community, to our neighborhoods. That's a byproduct of ministering to others and advancing the gospel and sharing the gospel. Let me ask us, and it's a hard question to ask. If we disappeared off the face of the mount tomorrow, North Park. Who's going to miss us? I'm not talking about family and friends. Our city is balling part. Orange County going to miss us? Hard question to ask. I think if the early church would have disappeared, some people would have missed them. Samaria would have been like, what? Believers, if you want to be a blessing to others, We've got to choose to get plugged in on what God is doing. 
the run and the lane he's running in. And as you minister to others and you share God's truth, God will begin to use you to be a blessing to others. And the incredible thing is we get to be involved with helping others experience true joy, like we see here. But the ultimate question we have to begin with is have you experienced the miracle of true conversion? We see that throughout this. We see in the Ethiopian eunuch someone that the Holy Spirit just, man, opens his eyes to understand the gospel he believes leaves rejoicing. And in Simon, we see somebody that doesn't seem to quite get it yet, who's still got the idols in his heart. How about you? Do you know for sure if there's been that time where you've genuinely turned from your sin and looked at the gospel and believed that Jesus died in your place on the cross, that he rose again, and turned from your sin and put your faith in him? If you haven't done that, I want to invite you to do that. And if you have done that, I want to invite you to join God and continue to join God in his mission. Let's pray.